Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. One of my favorite things to do as a priest is to journey with our brothers and sisters as they explore becoming Catholic in the RCIA program. The oddity is that oftentimes those who come into the church are the best educated Catholics that there are. It seems that what we need is something like RCIA for Catholics, for those of us who've grown up with the faith and have never really learned it. So I invite you to join those coming into the church as they learn about the beauty of our faith and hope as well that it will help to draw you ever closer to the God who is truth and love. Father, we're grateful for this day and for the great gift of life, for the blessings of the day that we've experienced, for the ways that we've seen your hand at work in uh, our encounters with people and our conversations or communication. Father, we ask that you would bless the work that we have done this day. May it bear fruit for the kingdom. We ask that you would make up for our inadequacies in the times that we have failed to show forth the greatness of your love in the way that we should. We continue to entrust into your hands our nation in this year of election, our city in this time of great strife and turmoil. Father, we pray in a special way for ourselves and our, our parish family here at Good Council and all the parishes that are represented here. Pray that these great days of grace that are about to begin next week would be ones in which our relationship with you deepens and our love for our brothers and sisters becomes ever more sincere and genuine. Help us to understand ever more profoundly what it means for us to say that we are followers of your Son. Give us ears tonight to hear that which your Spirit wants to say to each of us by name. All this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Somebody asked me just the other day if I would take some time to talk a little bit about Lent. Mindful of the fact that many people could use a refresher on Lent, not so much what to give up, but just kind of a a more profound understanding of what the season is really all about, which is my favorite time of year. I wanted to start with the situation that was in the news last week that some of you may or may not seen. This is what's known as the Rick Majerus situation. This man is a um, very successful basketball coach who currently is coaching at St. Louis University, which is a Jesuit university. And he was at an event within the last couple weeks for a political candidate running for president. And at some point during the event, the camera was on him and he was asked a question as to his stance on abortion. And he says, I'm pro-choice personally. And this has caused no small amount of writing in the press in St. Louis where the Archbishop, Archbishop Burke, who's a very staunch defender of all things Catholic, made a very quick response that the university has an obligation to address this because it is a Catholic university, although there's some question as to that as regards a court case that came up some years ago. But it's a Catholic university, and this man is someone who claims to be Catholic, and he is advocating a position which is not in harmony with what it means to be Catholic. And so the local papers in St. Louis came up with all sorts of stories. They, They pretty much lambasted the archbishop. How dare he, the successor of the apostles, claim to know what it means to be a disciple. And there's been kind of great support in many circles for the coach, usually along the lines of either something like academic freedom or free speech. But I thought I would lead with this, and I really wanted to reflect on it for those of us who've seen it in the news, but also use it as an opportunity for us to really apply to ourselves, because it's a common scenario. We see things like this all the time, you know, whether it's with politicians saying something or significant figures that are in the media or whatnot. I don't mean to make a judgment very clearly, I want to say that, on him or on others. I want to use this really as an opportunity for us to take this and apply it to ourselves and to make some reflection for our own lives, especially with the season of Lent. But I want to try to help us wade through this a bit, too. And the way the Archbishop is approaching this, this is not at all a matter of free speech. It's a given that we have the opportunity and the freedom in the country that we live in to say certain things which may or may not be offensive to other people. Like it or not, that is something that we have within limits in our country. But the Archbishop wasn't at all talking about the question of free speech. The Archbishop is really addressing which is far more important than free speech. 
He's addressing the matter, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So you're certainly uh, entitled to say or to think whatever you want, but you and I are not entitled to say or think whatever we want and at the same time claim to be followers of the God who became man, who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. That is not for me to decide. I cannot just willy-nilly make that up. To say that I am a Christian does not at all mean that I am uh, on the rolls of a church or that I belong to a social organization or that I take part in a club or that I advocate certain causes in the world. That's not what a Christian is. To be a Christian is to be a man or a woman of faith. And faith, the catechism tells us, to have faith means to cling to the person of Jesus. It means to adhere to him. It means for you and I to continually have our lives be measured by him, to be men and women who are in earnest about the pursuit of growing in holiness, growing in conformity to him, who trust that he is in fact the way, the truth, and the life, and that what he says is the truth, and that he's not interested in, as we talked about last time, God is not at all interested in somehow restricting my freedom or limiting my happiness. He's interested in leading me to happiness and helping me to find true freedom. But that doesn't come from me just determining for myself what I am and am not going to do. That's not freedom. It's lawlessness. So if we are going to say that we are Christians, then it means some things. Scripture is very clear on this. Just look at a couple texts real quick. Romans 12. We can look at texts all day long. Actually, let's start in Matthew. Matthew 7. Starting in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everybody who just identifies themselves as as a disciple. Not everyone who just mouths the words. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. There was no relationship. There was no friendship. There was no discipleship. I don't know about you, but I say, Lord, Lord, all day long. This is a bit of a a terrifying passage for me to continually examine my life to make sure that it's not just a bunch of words that I'm mouthing, but a heart that is in conjunction with the words that I am saying. The words are easy. Once you get to a certain point, everybody knows you're a Christian. The words are easy. It's the life that measures up to the words, which is not so easy. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does a living sacrifice mean? It means to allow ourselves to be somehow consumed by God. That's a living sacrifice to place ourselves on top of the altar, if you will, and to give everything back. Not to give an hour, to give everything back. To give my mind, my heart, my soul, my desires, my will, my intellect, my memory, my imagination, to give everything back to God who gave it all to me to begin with. That's a living sacrifice. And not out of some mere sense of obligation, but out of this great sense of joy. Lord, you gave me everything I have. How do I not trust you? You've sent your son for me. How do I not know that you are good? You have been merciful beyond measure. Why am I afraid? So to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul continues, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're going to hear often the word repent. To repent in its most literal sense just means to change the way we think. Metanoia is the word in Greek. It means to think new. To no longer think with the mentality of this world, but to think with the mind of Christ. That's what we're entrusted with the task of doing, of putting on Christ's mind. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes, Put off your old nature which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. That's not just sexual, that's all sorts of lusts. huh? And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's this constant admonition in scripture 
especially in Paul's letters, of taking something off the old person, the old man, the old woman, and putting something on. And this is tough. I mean, this is really tough. So let's make clear right away when I'm talking about a situation like this or we're looking at our own lives, when we say that we are disciples of Jesus, that is not at all to somehow stand in front of people and go, we are the flawless ones now. That's going to be the charge leveled against um, a certain mayor tonight as he speaks from a church. In all seriousness, there's going to be a number of people who are going to claim this man's in hypocrisy. But I don't know that. I have no access to his mind and his heart. I have no idea whether or not he has truly repented and, and has converted. None of us do, okay? But people will look and go, there's another fallen Christian. Well, that's what we all are. We're fallen Christians. It's not from me at least in his interior, to be able to know whether or not he is truly sorrowful for what he has done. There are some things that, as a public servant, we would look for to ensure that he has, in fact, changed his ways and whatnot, but it's not for me to know what's in his heart. Only God has access to that. So in talking about what it means to be a disciple, there's a difference between those of us, which is all of us, who are sinners, who are simply frail, fragile, filled with concupiscence, which means we're inclined to be selfish and often give in to it. There's a difference between that, that's all of us, versus somebody who is obstinate and defiant. So the person, us, me, who's in confession every two to three weeks, hopefully it's something there, I don't know how big it is, but there's something in me that's genuinely contrite, that I'm truly sorrowful for my sins. And by coming forward to acknowledge that, it's a way publicly of saying I know that there's some work to do in me. No small amount of work to do in me. That's very different than the person who stands here and says, I reject flat out your claim that to be a Christian means to love my neighbor. And anybody who says that they're personally in favor of abortion is denying one half of the great commandment, which is to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. Kind of hard to love my neighbor as myself if I'm advocating something which is not only bad for the woman who's carrying the child, but certainly bad for the child who's about to be killed. Okay, so you catch the difference. There's a difference between weakness, which we are, and obstinacy, which we need not be. And to be a Christian means that I surrender my life to God and that I trust that he continues to speak through the successors of the apostles whom he gathered together when he became man and walked this earth. This is, I think, extremely important for us in our day and age. Somewhere along the lines in the Catholic Church and amongst many Christians in general, we just decided on our own that we're going to make up somehow the terms of membership for belonging in the club, which is to be Christian. We can't do that. If we really understand what this is about, then it is about having my life measured by God. And if we don't think that that's demanding, we're not smelling the coffee. It's extraordinarily demanding. It's worth every penny, but it's demanding. Because who of us is living this well? I'm not in the front of the line, that's for sure. Is that pretty clear? This could sound more than a bit challenging to some of us, perhaps, who are here. You know, here's where Paul's talking about this contrast between, you know, having our minds conformed to Christ and transformed by Christ as opposed to being conformed to the world in which we live. So it would be kind of ludicrous for any of us, myself included, to deny that we aren't tremendously influenced by the culture in which we're living, whether it's the media or people's opinions that are espoused in different situations and oftentimes people's opinions on the church. Unfortunately, many people think they know what the church teaches about many things because they've heard it on a snippet on CNN or Fox, but they've never read a document to save their lives. You know, Vatican Information Service and Catholic News Service is pouring out information all day long, which no one talks about. And it's all pretty accessible on the Internet or whatnot, but we don't do that because it's a lot easier to just sit on my couch with a drink and watch headline news and get whatever 30-second sound bites. In other news, the Vatican once again upheld its... Uh, you know, male hierarchy that women cannot be ordained priests. And flashing on to the floods in Africa. I mean, it's like, what in the world was that? <laughs> but that's how we get our information oftentimes. The arch-conservative, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. So in seeing, you know, again, what we see uh, in kind of a, a public situation that's happening right now, and which has been in the news, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to begin to talk about length. And we're, we're a week out, so I'll just ask you... Um, what are you doing right now to get ready for Lent? Just think about that for a moment, other than dreading the days. 
you know. <laughs> Eating candy, yeah, that's right. Cleaning out the cupboards. <laughs> Another pint of Guinness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't realize I still had one. Seriously, what, what are we doing right now to get ready for Lent? My old approach to getting ready for Lent consisted in something like waking up in the morning on Ash Wednesday realizing that I couldn't eat today and then hastily coming up with some poorly thought out ideas as to what it was that I was going to give up. That was how I used to prepare for Lent. That didn't do much good. didn't bear a whole lot of profit for my life and my growth as a Christian. Probably was just at best an opportunity to practice a lot of self-control and self-discipline, some of which I have in many areas and in which I don't have it all in others. That's not my approach anymore. Starting maybe five or six years ago, I see something like from Monday of this week that we're in now, leading up till the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, is something like the getting ready for phase of Lent, where I try to really in earnest pray and to think every day about what it is that I'm going to do, and even more important for me, who I'm going to do it for. So I, I want to kind of walk us through some of that, conscious of the fact that some of us, at their request anyway, have asked for a brush-up on Lent. In our prayers, you know, in these days ahead, spend time every day thinking about what it is you're going to do. And don't just do what you did last year, and the year before, and the year before. and year, I mean, for, I think for like eight years in a row, I've done pretty much the same thing now, and it's getting really old. So I'm, I'm taking on different things this year that I'm really focusing on, and so that it's not just another season for me uh, in the church here. Purpose of Lent is really simple. It's to emerge at Easter looking more like Jesus. That's the only purpose. To the degree that you and I show up at the vigil on Easter Saturday or come to Easter Sunday Mass looking more like the Lord, it will have been a graced Lent. To the extent that we don't, it was a total waste of time for us as Christians. To the extent that we have grown in conformity to the Lord, which means that we have grown in our love for God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to the degree that we have grown in love for our neighbor, then it will have been a very fruitful time. Um, To the extent that our character has developed, um, to the extent that we have grown in virtue and put off vice, it will have been a blessed time. But if it's just a time where we gave up caffeine or uh, you know fit into a smaller size of pant, it was really useless. The group of guys I used to live with We lived together for about a year and a half or so. We had a simple rule in Lent that the moment you started acting like a jerk, (laughs) uh, whatever it is that you gave up, you started having again. So if you gave up coffee, but the result of your giving up coffee was you made life hell for everybody else, (laughs) have your coffee. Because this isn't doing any good. You're not practicing charity. And so it's, it's pointless. This is not about mind control or seeing what we can do. This is about us growing in love. I used to wonder if some of the guys weren't intentionally mean just so they could have back what it was that they had given up, but I have to trust that they weren't. So, I mean, that's a good gauge for us. If we get into this and we realize, you know what, I'm just a total bear to be around. And this happens very often for many of us, and it's a really humbling thing. Then it's oftentimes God's way of just saying, you know what, maybe you can't do that much. Maybe you should just work on something much smaller. Maybe you're not quite as heroic as you thought you were. And it's like, oh. <laughs> Not many of us take on like really grandiose things. I lived with a guy who fasted the whole season of Lent. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. He did not eat for Lent, period. He drank water. You want to talk about inspiring. And he would spend the week before Lent getting ready for it, just kind of preparing his system for the fact that it wasn't going to eat for the next month and a half. And he'd lose 30 pounds. And he was the most joyful man He's one of the most joyful men I've ever known. Always smiling, always happy. You'd never guess the guy hasn't eaten in a month. Want something to eat? No, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. You know. And you don't think that was inspiring to see? I measure some of the things that I do by him. It's like, wow, you gave up eating between meals. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> but if you see the way I eat, <laughs> you would not be impressed by that. You know. Some of us are like the camel syndrome. You just kind of, okay, I'm only going to eat once a day that I won't need anything again till tomorrow night at dinner. I mean, most of us don't do anything that grand, at least not as grand as this guy did. And yet even that sometimes, these little things that we do, are real stretches for us. If we grow in humility, that means we grow in the image of Jesus. 
And sometimes the Lord, very early on in the season, will say, you know what, why don't we just change plans? Let's deviate course. And how about you don't do that, and let's just work on this. So we want to be always open to what it is that he's going to do in the season. So the purpose of Lent is to emerge looking more like him. To do this, the church has traditionally given us three helps to arrive at this end. The three helps are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Prayer, not saying prayers, but praying. For most of us, this means two things. At least for me, I know it means two things. It means more time, and it means greater depth. There are few of us here, I think, I'm certainly not one, who would say, you know what, I think I'm praying enough. I think I'm putting in my time. I'm always aware that there's more that I should be doing, especially as a pastor. I mean, more time just before the Lord on behalf of all the people who I care for, all the people who come my way, all the emails, all the phone calls, all the people who sit in my office, all the prayer requests, everything. There's always, for me, this constant conviction from God to spend more time in prayer, and I would suggest that all of us are the same way, that we need more time. But as much as we need more time, and maybe even for some of us, more than we need more time, we need greater depth. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that I'm doing for Lent, some of you pray what's known as the, uh, the divine office, the liturgy of the hours, which is something that as a priest I'm obliged to pray under pain of mortal sin. So for me to skip praying the office, which I pray on your behalf, is a mortal sin for me. I have to go to confession if I miss that. To pray the office takes no small amount of time. It's made up of the Psalms and reading some scripture and readings from different saints down through the ages. It's a beautiful collection of prayers and whatnot. Lay people oftentimes love to pray it. It's a great grace for lay people. It's rarely experienced as a great grace for priests. It's different this way because it's something that you don't have to pray. It's something I'm obliged to pray, and so I find it oftentimes to be rather tedious. And it can be somewhat perfunctory for me to pray it, and I can use it sometimes as a substantial part of the hour in the morning that I pray. If I pray it prayerfully, and hopefully I pray it prayerfully, but sometimes I don't, sometimes more rotely, it'll take me a half hour. That's a half of my holy hour. And what it can easily become for me is it's just filled up half my holy hour. And so oftentimes, and this is where I am right now, the other day as I was praying, I just felt like the Lord say, if you're really going to work on this intimacy thing with me, how about you do that outside your holy hour? How about you actually give me the hour? Even though when I'm praying in the office, I'm talking to the Lord. I'm talking for you, but I'm talking to the Lord. The Lord's going, ah, your heart's not really in this, son. So do that the rest of the day. And when you come to me, just come to me. Bring your scriptures, bring whatever, but just come to me. Leave that out. So that's my challenge. I know one of my challenges in this season, if, if I'm truly going to grow in friendship with God, which is one of my goals this Lent, is to really deepen my relationship with the Lord as a friend, and then that means my prayer's got to be a little bit more genuine. As opposed to just saying words, I have to get out of habits that can easily form for me. You may have something similar. Some of us, we go to pray and we spend time before Mass and we pray the rosary. Keep praying the rosary, by all means. Some of us need to start praying the rosary for Lent. But maybe the Lord's suggestion to you is, hey, why don't you pray the rosary in the car? How about when you're here, we just talk? Don't fill up the time. So let's be sensitive as to whatever it is that we can do to just kind of work on the depth of the friendship. Some of us are going to do this as husbands and wives or as family. You know, we're going to turn off the TV during Lent. Why? So that we can spend more time together. Well, we were spending time together with the TV on too. Yeah, but we weren't talking. That's how some of us are in our relationship with God. we got all these other things on. And we're sitting there in his presence, but we're not really listening. So whatever we can do to grow in that would be great. The second help that the church gives us is fasting. I want to talk more at length about this in a moment, given the rumor that I don't eat, which is not true. Someone just made a pan of stuffed shells. It was one of these huge cookie sheets. I just ate the whole pan. So, I mean, <laughs> trust me, I eat, okay? I told Father Steve, uh, he saw me eating, and he says, wow, who made that? I told him, he says, oh, great. I said, don't plan on it. <laughs> <laughs> There won't be any left, and there's not. So let me skip fasting for a second, and let's look at almsgiving quickly. Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give alms, note, when, not if, when you give alms, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when, not if, 
when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So point number one is there is a clear implication that we will be giving alms. What are they? What are alms? How are alms distinct from tithes? Yeah, they're extra. There's a kind of an ongoing debate amongst lots of people on tithes as to whether or not a tithe is 10% of what it is that you make and whatnot. That's what I tithe. So 10% of nothing is... <laughs> you see my checks. 10% of nothing is pretty much nothing. But So I, I tithe 10% of what I make. And the little bit that we get as a church is lovely. You know, It means we can buy toner or something. Or paper clips or rubber bands. But I tithe 10%. But you know, whatever we tithe, the tithing is that amount that we've set aside that each month we give back to the poor. Actually, tithes would be something... It's made up of a variety of things, but it's typically that we would give to our church and then to maybe some other things in addition to that all at the same time. So we might tithe to the parish. We might sponsor a child. We might give to you know a pro-life group. We might do a whole variety of things. We might give to St. Al's downtown in Detroit, whatever it might be. Alms is over and above that. So alms is over and above what we already tithe every month or every two weeks or whenever it is that we write our tithes. So just like with the season of Lent in general and kind of asking, okay, what should we do for this season? In terms of alms, even as we're looking at how can we grow in intimacy and prayer or deeper friendship, so with alms, it's worth just taking these days leading up to Lent going, Lord, show me where is it I should be generous in this season. Bring someone to mind. Bring a cause to mind. Bring someone into my path. Who knows what it will be? We might hear something on Catholic radio. We might see something on TV. You might get a mail. I mean, you're certainly going to get something in the mail, but something might actually jump out at you. You might hear about something from a friend, whatever it is. I mean, just expect God to bring something into our path in these days ahead and to somehow move us in a particular way to know we should reach out there. The two great commandments, to love the Lord, to love our neighbor, this is one of the ways that we show our love for neighbor. So alms are usually in a particular way connected with the poor. Almsgiving, Scripture says, atones for sin. I should be broke if I was smart. (laughs) We should all just see this as a great way to really show our gratitude to God for his mercy to us and his generosity to us with his mercy, so to reach out in generosity to others who are in need. I want to say a little bit more right now on fasting in general and then penance in particular. I already said to change the way that we think. In a book that Pope Benedict wrote, it's actually a collection of essays that he's written over the years, he says something that I found to be quite striking and quite true in my own life. He says, My impression is that Christianity today suffers to a great extent from a lack of readiness for conversion. He says, People are eager to receive the comfort of religion, but they are also aware that they cannot give it to themselves, but that it needs to be supported by the community of believers and its authority. But they shrink from the binding nature of church teaching and church life and reserve for themselves the choice of what they consider to be religiously useful and understandable. This is the scenario that's happening with the coach. Committing oneself, that is, accepting the whole package, including those elements which at the moment do not seem to be either evident or useful, appears as too large a step. The obligatory doctrines and life of the church are transposed into the invective official church, and are thus declared to be something bureaucratic and superficial. In the Pentecost account of the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus' call to conversion, to change one's ways, is concretized for the situation following the resurrection. Through Peter's speech, the listeners realize that they killed the one whom God had sent to them for their salvation. As the text says, they are cut to the heart and ask, what are we to do? And the answer is, repent and be baptized Every one of you. The structure of conversion becomes very clear here. First of all, it calls for hearing the apostolic message. So one of the things, hopefully, that happens to us in this season of Lent, even though we've heard these readings all the time, we hear them ad nauseum. I mean, there's few people here who are going to hear the gospel readings that we're going to hear, whether it's every day during the season of Lent or especially on the Sundays during the season of Lent, and go, wow, I never heard that. Our challenge is we've heard it too often. But the first step in repentance is to hear what's being said. If you were at Mass this morning, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and Jesus begins the parable with this kind of bizarre expression, you know, let him who has ears to hear, hear 
Hearing is very different than listening. Someone can stand up in front of us and talk all the time, depending upon which one we want to use. We can either hear but not listen, or we can listen but not hear. The admonition here is for us to hear the message of the gospel like never before. That's the first step. Then it requires, the Pope says, deep shock in the face of one's own guilt. In Acts 2, when Peter's preaching, and the crowd all responds to him, the people are cut to the quick, the scriptures say. Their hearts are pierced. And all of a sudden, they realize, as Peter's talking, they killed Jesus of Nazareth. Even though they weren't the ones pounding the nails in, they realize, I killed him. My sin. It was me. I did this. Very personally. And so what's supposed to happen for all of us Every year, because this just constantly deepens if we're being open to the action of the Spirit, every year that we come to realize a little bit more the beauty of the cross, even as we see the horror of the cross. I did that. I'm responsible for that. He didn't do it for us. He did it for me. Out of his great love, he did it for me. And so I have to hear the gospel, and then I have to be shocked at my own guilt. I remember going to Auschwitz one time. I've told this Oftentimes, but it's a great reminder to me. I remember just walking through the camp with some friends of mine. And if you've been there, you know what it's like. If you haven't been there, you can just imagine what it's like to walk through hell where you can feel hatred. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And to see what happened is just amazing. And after this uh, experience of great anger and outrage and whatever that you have when you're walking through, shortly after that happens, then, at least for me, came this really sobering, humiliating realization that men did this. Not demons. Men did this. Men like me. Men with great passion. And that I can do that. That I have within me the capacity to do everything that I'm seeing. That this is where all of my passion, if it's not harnessed well, this is where it will go. I can hate with the best of them. I can objectify with the best of them. I can reduce someone to a thing with the best of them. If my mind is not controlled by the Spirit, so long as I am in conformity with the world as opposed to being transformed by Christ, then I can be just like them. I know that from my past. You know, hopefully we grow in that. We just grow in this humble realization that I have, we all have this incredible potential for evil. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount raises the bar with the commandments. You have heard that it is said, to kill, I tell you that it is wrong for you to hate your brother and that he who who does so shall be answerable for it. Well, most of us, or all of us, may not have killed, but I bet all of us have hated our brother or our sister at some point in our lives. We have that within us. And my thoughts, if I don't check them, if they're not constantly being brought into the light, they can run wild and they can destroy. And so Lent is a time for me to just be sobered by that and to bring my mind ever more to Christ and have him transform it. So I have to have deep shock in the face of my own guilt. Then he says, lastly, the inability to mourn, or better, the inability to be contrite, has to be overcome. So we have to learn, I want to say a little bit about this in in just a second, but we have to learn how to truly mourn. And this prolonged season of Lent is a time for us to do that. Lastly, the Holy Father in the same article, he says, when Jonah came to Nineveh, and demanded penance, everyone knew what penance was. One put on penitential clothes, fasted, and prayed. When Muslims celebrate Ramadan, they know the procedure, and they also know that penance can become a concrete reality for a people, only if it has a common form and a regular time in the course of the year. In our case, penance has lost its communal form completely. See if this rings true to you. When Christians are called upon to do penance, they do not know what it is. I would say that's true by and large. Typical Sunday Mass... People are there, we say, okay, it's time for us to do penance, and people go, okay, what are you talking about? It's one of those words we hear thrown around all the time, but we don't know what it means to do penance. We have no idea what it's entailed. So we may set up a committee, he says, and isn't that just what we do? Let's get some folks together and talk about what this is. So that's penance in general. It's changing the way we think. It's really hearing the message of the gospel anew, coming to a greater understanding of the cross, being reminded that the cross is something that I am responsible for, which hopefully leads to tremendous gratitude. That's the point. Not to have tremendous despair. uh -uh. Tremendous gratitude that God would choose to do that for me. 
given especially who I can be so often, even if it's in my thoughts. There's two ways of doing penance. Maybe we could say it this way. We do penance for others. We do penance for ourselves. Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, is when Jesus talks about fasting. And just like he talks about it as regards alms, the operative word there is when you fast, not if. So the implication is, as Christians, we're going to fast. And this is a season for it in a particular way. During Easter, you cannot fast. The early church used to forbid it. Easter is a time of great joy and celebration. There's no fasting in Easter. But we're not in Easter yet. When Easter comes, we can eat all we want. But when Lent starts next week, it's time to fast. When, not if. So the point of that one passage is that the Lord's given us this clear direction that we are to be people who fast, at least at particular times. Mark 9 is a great passage to look at. Mark 9, verses 29. This is after the transfiguration of Jesus. And he comes down off the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and the apostles are trying to heal somebody who's possessed. And they're trying to to heal him, and they can't heal him. Jesus walks up, and he heals the man after saying a few things to rebuke the apostles. And the apostles come to him after and say, how come we couldn't do this? And Jesus' response is, some kinds only come out through prayer and fasting. And the point there is something like fasting, I think of it as um, heavy artillery in terms of spiritual warfare. Fasting is a hidden act of love which the people that we do it for typically never see. Sometimes they do, but usually they never see it. You know, So you might be fasting for, you know, who knows, your husband's conversion or your wife's conversion. and You probably wouldn't want to make that known. You know, you sit down to dinner, want some meatloaf, honey? No, thanks, I'm not eating. Why not? I'm fasting for you. <laughs> that doesn't go too well. But fasting works. I'm not sure how. I just know it does. And I think the way it does is it can have the effect of eroding in somebody their resistance to God's grace. So when we talk about not only making sure we're going to come up with what we're going to do during Lent, but who we're going to do it for, pick people. I'm going to give you some suggestions in a minute. Pick people to fast for or to do penance for. That way it's not just about you, but when you're tempted to do whatever it is that you've given up during Lent, you think of them and you pray for them and you trust that somehow these hidden acts of love which we do for each other will bear an impact on one another. It's a key spiritual principle. And in Colossians 1.24, which is a passage in Paul's letters where he says that I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's got to be the most difficult passage in the Bible to understand. What in the world is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Nothing except my participation. He wants me to be involved with him in the work of redemption. There's only one redeemer. His name's Jesus. He wants me to be involved with him in the work of redemption. That's what Paul's saying. These sufferings that he takes on, he fills up in his own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of others. That's how fasting works, or works of penance work for us. We do certain things for others, because when we deny ourselves, however small it might be, it's a sharing in the passion. It's not being you know, nailed to the cross and crowned with thorns, but it's a sharing in the passion. Because it's something that we could do, could have, could eat, could drink, could whatever, but we've given it up. We've given it up out of love, so we're denying ourselves something out of love. And anytime we're denying ourselves, it's a sharing somehow in the passion. One of the times, in a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at Benedict's encyclical on hope, this one passage at paragraph 40, but I wanted to remind us of it because uh, it fits in perfectly with this whole idea of doing penance for others. He says, I would like to add here another brief comment with some relevance for everyday living. There used to be a form of devotion, perhaps less practiced today, but quite widespread not long ago, that included the idea of offering up the minor daily hardships that continually strike at us like irritating jabs, thereby giving them a meaning. That's key for us in Lent. Give whatever it is that you do a meaning. So, for example, I'm going to get up at 3 in the morning once a week and pray an extra half hour. I'm not saying I'm going to do that, but I might done stuff like that before. Like I'm going to do it, and this is the meaning behind it. I'm going to do it for my brother-in-law who's away from the church, or for my sister who's going through a difficult time in her marriage, or for the next president of the United States. Give it a meaning. Of course, there were some exaggerations, the Pope says, and perhaps unhealthy applications of this devotion, but we need to ask ourselves whether there may not, after all, have been something essential and helpful contained within it. What does it mean to offer something up? Those who did so were convinced that they could insert these little annoyances into Christ's great compassion 
so that they somehow became part of the treasury of compassion so greatly needed by the human race. In this way, even the small inconveniences of daily life could acquire meaning and contribute to the economy of good and of human love. Maybe, he says, we should consider whether it might be judicious to revive this practice ourselves. A great thing to do during Lent. What can we offer up for others? If you have no ideas what it is that you might want to do penance for, I'll give you two. One would be marriages which are on the verge of divorce. That would be a great thing to pray for in a special way and to do penance for. Couples who are going through very difficult times, who for one reason or another are tempted to quit. Those who have forgotten the in sickness part in their vows as well as in health. Or you might want to pray for priests who are tempted to leave the priesthood. Just came across another guy the other day who I think real highly of who's contemplating leaving. I got great friends who've left, who I think the world of. You might want to pray for family members who are away from the faith, for those who despair of God's mercy, maybe especially those who've had abortions, who feel that somehow God couldn't possibly forgive that. Pray that somehow in these great days of grace that they just be kind of overwhelmed with God's love, that they be brought back to confession. Pray for those who've been away from confession for years to come back to the sacrament where they can experience him and encounter him. And Though some of us here, and I know that, you know, we might be diabetic or whatnot, some of us can't fast from food. Everybody can fast from something. I think the most difficult fast I did one year was I fasted from sports. This was almost 20 years ago. That tells you how much pain I endured in this. I haven't done it since. <laughs> God's way of saying, hmm, how much do you really love these people? It was the year Michigan won the national championship in basketball. And I missed it all, <laughs> except for the, uh, I think the championship game. So, I mean, we can all fast from something. Some people, food is no big deal. You know, like people give up meat, but they don't eat meat anyway. So, it's no fast. Fridays is not supposed to be a day to, you know, to just kind of simplify and have lobster and crab. It's supposed to be a little bit more basic than that, you know, by and large. I don't think we quite get the spirit. Find something that'll cost, especially depending upon you know, like who it is that you're doing this for, whatever meaning that you've given it to, then figure out, okay, what can I do that's going to cost me? Mindful that what I'm looking for for this is great benefit for my neighbor. So what am I willing to do for my neighbor? That's ultimately what it comes down to. Well, I love you, but not that much. It's only a month and a half. Not even that. 40 days. So we do penance for others, and we do penance for ourselves, for our sins. In the Beatitudes, one of the often misunderstood Beatitudes is when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. That's not blessed are the crybabies. Who is blessed here? The ones who are blessed here, at least one of the most powerful ways to understand this passage, are those who mourn for their sins. Those who in the face of the cross are struck with tremendous sorrow over what we've done. The Catechism talks about in the Christian's life, there are two baptisms. There's a baptism that happens with water. There's a baptism that happens with tears. The first baptism is the sacrament that we received as an infant or as a child. The other baptism is hopefully all throughout our life. And there's a a favorite tradition of mine of St. Peter, small t tradition, that Peter cried so often in his life that he had furrows underneath his eyes. And it wasn't because he didn't think God loved him or he didn't forgive him. It was simply because he was filled with great sorrow for how he had offended the one who is love. So we talk oftentimes St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, who would have a few choice words for St. Louis University right now, (laughs) spoke often about praying and asking God for the gift of tears. Great gift to ask for. So we might take on something. Here's the nutshell version of this. You want to take something on this season, do it for two causes. Do something for someone else, and then take something else on for ourselves as an expression of sorrow and remorse for our sin. Something that will be a daily reminder to us of the fact that God has redeemed me at a tremendous price. I was not entitled to my redemption. It is an incredible gift, and I should not take it for granted. And hopefully what this will do is it will help the cross to be for us something that really does arouse within us a great sense of shock and sorrow and gratitude. I always go back, especially this time of year, to a quote that was made by a man who works in the Vatican now. He used to live in Washington, D.C., a Dominican priest who saw The Passion of the Christ when it first came out. And he said two things. He said, first, when he saw the movie, his first thought was, 
If this is the remedy, God being ripped to shreds so that he's almost not recognizable as a man anymore for my redemption, if that's the remedy, then how great must my wound be? If that's the cure, then I must be far more diseased than I thought. And the second thing he said was that the cross and the passion of the Lord tells us that sin must be far more serious than we ever feared to imagine, which unfortunately many of us take quite lightly. I know I can oftentimes. The most serious sin of our day and age is pretty typically regarded as the loss of the sense of sin. The cross shows me that sin is far more serious than I ever feared to imagine, but it also, and perhaps almost certainly, more importantly tells me that his mercy and his love are far greater than anything I ever could have hoped for. That's why we enter into Easter when it finally comes with tremendous joy. So the prophets would talk all the time in the Old Testament. They would call the people to repent. They would tell them to rend their hearts and not their garments. To rend your garments is what the high priest does when Jesus says that he is the Son of God and to rend your garment is this outward demonstration of the fact that you're somehow either horrified by what you've heard or you're sorrowful. But it's easy to tear clothes. It's much more difficult to tear hearts. And the message of the prophets and the message of the Lord through the prophets to you and me as we come into Lent is to let this to be a true season of repentance where we really turn to face the Lord, to bring our whole lives into his light, to ask him to conform our minds to his and our hearts to his so that we can be men and women who grow in virtue and put off vice and grow in charity for our neighbor and in love for the Lord who loves us. And if we can do that, we really rend our hearts, if we really take seriously this call to repentance, to put on a new way of thinking, then it will be a really graced and blessed season of Lent for us all. So let's pray for that for one another. Let's pray for that for the parish families, wherever we may belong to, and that these would be times of great renewal for us in the church today. When we end there, and uh, we just kind of leave it for uh, whatever questions that people might have, especially as regards this season, because I know there are many. Some of the folks who asked me to speak in it are here tonight, I know. Anything uh, come to mind? Father, earlier when you were talking about the Detroit situation and the basketball coach, and you referred to the idea of not passing judgment, and yet, especially with a coach, how often in today's world politicians or other are known to attend Mass, receive communion? How do we not pass judgment? It gets confusing. Are we just looking the other way, ignoring something? Good question. If there's one verse that the world seems to know in the Bible, it's thou shalt not judge. It's about the only one they know, but they seem to know that one. That's not an absolute command, first of all, because at the same time, Jesus tells us that we are to judge. Jesus says in the Gospels that you judge a tree by its fruit. So obviously, I'm supposed to make some judgments. I think that the way to go about this is to understand that I am commanded and I'm obliged, and depending upon the level of authority that I have, that obligation can be much greater to make judgments on actions. For example, in this case, the archbishop made it really clear that if this person were to come to him for communion, he wouldn't give it to him, that he couldn't unless he publicly renounced his view. And then he's a person who has the authority and has the obligation to make a judgment because the point of making the judgment is not to condemn somebody, it's to call somebody to repentance. That's the whole purpose of it, to say to somebody, my brother or my sister, you're in danger right now. You're holding something to be true which is not true, putting your soul in peril. So he has an obligation out of love to say something to his brother. So I judge the actions. What I can't judge, and this is, I think, the thing to remember at the same time, is I have no idea why you hold what you hold. So I can't judge your interior. No one here ever has access to anybody else's interior. That's cut off from me. I can see your actions, but I don't know why you do what you do. And so I have to be clear on judging what I've seen you do. If I'm smart, I'll err on the side of being generous as I try to judge your motivation. Because Jesus tells me that the measure with which I measure is how I will be measured back. And please, God, when we die, God will say to us, you were really generous, as opposed to you were a stingy little son of a gun. (laughs) Okay, so that's the distinction. I have to judge the actions. In this case, that's wrong, that's right, that's good for you, that's bad for you. A loving mom does that. Don't do that, that's harmful to you. And then gives the reasons why. But I can't, in a case of somebody who's doing something or has done something and it's come to light, I can't pretend to know why they did what they did. That I can't see. If it's somebody going to communion, well, I refer to the politicians, this is an action. You're not claiming to look into anybody's heart. This action of receiving communion is offensive. It can be as offensive as throwing the host on the ground. 
is it making a judgment to refer to this overt action in that sense? You mean for you to judge somebody who's going to communion who you know to be in contradiction to no, the I'm teachings of the church? No, I'm talking about somebody that has a public persona. Who's making the judgment here? The other parishioners, the parishioners that see this politics. Parishioners should have their eyes closed during communion. During communion, your eyes should either be closed or reading the hymn. If they're not, then you're watching people. And if we're watching people, that's a bad thing to do. Because when I start watching people, I start making judgments. And not the kinds that are good. And I mean that real seriously. I mean, it's a challenge to all of us. That's why I pray most of the Mass with my eyes closed. I don't want to see some of the things that are going on sometimes. Okay. You know? <laughs> I know what you're saying. And yet I'm offended when I read in the paper. And it's probably the news media I'm seeing this. I can't honestly say I've sure. been at a Mass. But I'm irritated when I read in the media these things that are brought up about supposedly Catholic politicians. Okay. And the issue there is that somebody who is in public office, who is holding a position which is in clear defiance, not only of the church's teaching, but it also in contradiction to the good of humanity, which is an unreasonable position to hold, in this case, namely that it's okay to kill children. Even if it's okay to kill children in certain circumstances, that's what you're saying. When you say, I'm personally pro-choice, I think that there are certain conditions where it's okay to kill a child. So for someone to say that, it's not fine for them to say that, but if you want to hold that position, you can hold that position. But you can't hold that position publicly and at the same time come forward to receive the Lord and say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Because to be a disciple of Jesus means that I am someone who's bringing my heart, mind, and soul under his lordship. And I'm not under his lordship if I think that that doesn't have any influence on what I think about what people can do to other people. So in that situation, the issue here is should that person... And this is a different matter between, you know, like Sally Smith and Rob Johnson. Their minds still may need to be formed on this, and they're coming to communion. They really are ignorant. That's a different matter than someone who's in a public office who has made clear that they think that the church's teaching on this is wrong and that they're going to be adamant in their obstinacy and still come forward without caring what you, the bishop here, thinks. That's something that can't happen. Because to come to communion is to say, I agree with what all these people hold to be true. You either believe that or you don't. If you don't believe that, then don't come forward for communion. This is not a photo op. All right. Let's go do Lent. <laughs> all right, Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 754. For a CD of this or any of our programs, Online, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 754. RCA for Catholics number 9, Lent. Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a non-profit organization called Acts 29 which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.